Before we get started, I wanted to invite you to leave a review for Still Rowing on iTunes. This is so helpful and important to gather ratings and reviews so that more people have a chance of finding the podcast. If you have never left a review on iTunes, I've given instructions in the show notes. It's easy. It takes just a couple of minutes. So if you've benefited in any way from this podcast, leaving a review would be so helpful in spreading the word about these stories of faith and hope. Thanks in advance for your help. Also, if you'd like to receive a little daily motivation to keep rowing, please follow me on Instagram and Facebook. My handle on Instagram is at still underscore rowing underscore podcast and on Facebook at still rowing. Now on with the show. This is Still Rowing, a podcast where members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints share their authentic stories of struggle and triumph on their journey of discipleship and just why they are choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Leo Weiniger loves his Savior Jesus Christ and the restored gospel. He's a member of the church, living in Dallas with his wife and three children. About 10 years ago, Leo experienced a faith crisis and has been rowing toward faith ever since. In 2017, he founded Uplift Community of Faith and has worked tirelessly to minister to those who question and to their loved ones. I'm Tara McCausland. Welcome to the Still Rowing Podcast. And a warm welcome to Leo, who is graciously giving of his time today. Thanks so much, Leo, for being here. Yeah, happy to be here. And I love that Leo is a kingdom builder. I'm excited to have you share your faith journey with our listeners. Yours is a story that gives me hope for those who struggle. And we all know someone who is struggling with their faith. But to start, when is the first time you recall feeling the spirit in your life? Yeah, so I'm a lifetime member. So of course, growing up in a home where the gospel is being taught, I'm sure that there are times that I had felt the spirit and um, didn't really recognize it as probably well as I should as a young kid. But I guess one of the bright moments of feeling the spirit would stands out is when I was, I was kind of an older EFY, the first time goer. I was, I think, like, I'm just embarrassed to say, but probably like 18, close to leaving on a mission. And I got, I snuck into a, an EFY session. I felt so um, kind of out of place there because of just all the younger kids. And But I went with my friend who said I should go and help me prepare for my mission. And so I went and and I was so, I was there not to be, not to socialize because <laughs> it was just a bunch of young kids. I felt like I was just kind of this out of place guy, but um, I was there to feel the spirit and to prepare for my mission. And so uh, one night we were outside, um, it was at BYU, and uh, and the I was with the instructor and, and we were all having a spiritual uh, talk and trying to um, open up. And I remember just sim- simply looking down and seeing some beautiful flowers uh, there in front of me. And, and it, the spirit spoke to me and said, I made this for you is what I heard the spirit say. And it was, it was just a beautiful moment where I felt like the beauty of the earth testified of God. And so it was probably one of the first moments. And before, before that I felt just a warm, peaceful feeling. 
at different times. Like I remember in the bishop's office um, meeting for priest quorum, I always felt uh, warm and peaceful there and in that sacred place. And, and there's other times in, in my home where I'd felt uh, the Holy Ghost. And, and yeah, but that, that one moment where I was at EFY really did, it's like every kid, it's like the cliche EFY story to have the uh, kid feel the spirit for the first time. But for me, I was older and it really meant a lot to me. Well, thank you for sharing those experiences, Leo. I love to have people share moments when they knew that they felt the spirit, because I feel like remembering is just so integral to sustaining faith throughout our lives. Mm-hmm. And especially in times when we, we feel like the heavens are closed. And so, so thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. And just as each person is unique, so is every person's faith journey. So can you walk us through your journey and some of the challenges you've encountered? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, I, of course, um, was checking all the boxes, uh, like we're supposed to do as members of the church, uh, served a mission and, and, uh, got married in the temple and, um, started a family and everything was going along great. And just normal challenges that a member of the church would have, uh, just a typical life in the church. Uh, and, um, I was sounds so cliche to talk when you talk to people that have faith challenges, but my my uh, experience is just it's just almost sounds silly, but I was surfing YouTube <laughs> one day and uh, watched um, this video of this Manti pageant uh, recording um, that said something about um, uh, Joseph Smith's wives, and it was a bunch of um, protesters, but but they weren't holding up signs. They were a bunch of women that had dressed up in pioneer clothes and were lined up outside of the Manti pageant um, that were there from probably from out of state or from different denominations, church Christian denominations that were there to basically demonstrate or preach against our church. And so they were there with uh, little signs um, on their uh, chest to uh, signify their name of the, 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 the woman that they represented, they had memorized some of their history, and, and the person was going going through all these women, asking about their experience, and they were told about the age that they were married to Joseph, and and I had um, not really heard much about Joseph's plural marriage and, until that, that time. Um, I, I can talk more about why that is at some point with anybody that's interested, but basically that was a surprise to me, and and I wasn't sure what to make of it, and um, and so I kept studying and researching different things about plural mar- marriage, and then other critiques uh, of the church. And this was almost about ten years ago when this happened, um, and so so went through that uh, experience. Um, basically, what's called deconstructing my faith, which is just because of curiosity, looking into all the is- issues that I could find to to like a counterexample counter narrative to what I'd been taught growing up. I didn't know, I thought, well, I didn't really know any better. I wasn't ever taught opposing views, taught to think critically, to challenge my testimony because everyone around me was supporting me in my testimony, trying to encourage me never to challenge it, which is a, a normal thing to do. But at that point, I felt like I couldn't really trust the church, the authority that was presented to me as the truth. 
and um, lost my faith in the church, my belief that the church was true, and lost my belief that, in actually in, in God for a little while. I wasn't even sure that there was a God um, because the church was so integral, so part of, connected to my belief in God. It was kind of like my my faith in God was through the church. Um, the belief in the institution came crumbling down. Um, I lost my faith in God for a time. Uh, after about a year or so of, of kind of floundering, not really sure what to think anymore, one day out of the blue, a voice spoke to me, uh, just as simple to describe it that way, it's just a voice, and, and said, out of the blue, contact Stephen Harper. And it was a surprise because I hadn't thought anything about Stephen Harper for a while. And uh, it, he was a, he's a professor at BYU that I'd had, and he actually helped with writing the Saints volume, New Church History volume, and a great professor of the DNC that I took at BYU. And I I liked him at that time, trusted him. I thought he seemed very genuine, very sincere, very knowledgeable about church history. And so that came out of the blue. And long story short, I emailed him and he responded in a kind and honest and, and a great way that helped me to, to rekindle my desire to believe um, and set me on the right path. He, he actually just encouraged me. He gave me this, the facts and confirmed a few facts for me, and then he encouraged me to examine my assumptions that I was making about those facts and see if I could maybe rethink what I would, some of the conclusions that I had started to make about Joseph. And and that helped me to kind of you know, stop me in my tracks, I guess you could say, of, of concluding that the church was false by saying, well, maybe I can withhold judgment on these assumptions that I was making. And instead of assuming the worst about Joseph, maybe I could re-examine those assumptions and maybe try to investigate and see if there's other ways to conclude about some of these facts. And that really helped me. And, and so after that point, I've just been slowly rebuilding my faith since then. Thank you for sharing that. A couple of thoughts came to me. You know, sometimes in the church, we think that people who leave, leave because they want to sin, because they don't want to keep the commandments or they're just tired of the lifestyle or the expectations. But the more I hear stories of people who have struggled, and there are a myriad of reasons why people may choose to leave the church ultimately, but I think as as members who are wanting to help those who struggle, we need to make sure that we we don't assume why people are being challenged. Because often within the church, the narrative is, they just don't want to keep the commandments or they're sinning. Right. Therefore, they want out. But what would you say about that? Well, yeah, I mean, there's thousands of different answers to this. As many as many as there are people that have left the church, each of them have their own unique experience. But there has been some studies done on this, and they've, they've asked people who have left why they left. And, you know, the vast majority of them talk about uh, losing belief in Joseph Smith and because of church history and um, because of our views on LGBT and um, women and the priesthood. And and there's all these what they would consider very legitimate concerns that they have about the church. So at the very bottom of the studies that have been done are, you know, people responding or are not saying because I wanted to sin, you know, and that's kind of a, it's a kind of a misnomer as well. <laughs> The whole concept of sin for most people that leave the church, that especially those that turn to atheism, some form of atheism, the belief in sin flies out the window, right? There, there is no real sin anymore. The way that at least 
way we would define it in the church, you know, drinking coffee is not a sin. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so they, so most of them, um, it's kind of the confusing part for a lot of people, um, members of the church, is to watch loved ones um, start to drink and start to drink coffee and, and some of them start to smoke and, and do other things that would we would consider to be sinful. So we'd say, well, they wanted to sin, but to these people, they're just living authentically, right? And, and living in a way that they don't feel like these things are sinful anymore because they've lost belief in the truth claims of the church. And so it's kind of like a, uh, it's after the fact, right? It's, um, it, it, it doesn't prove the reason why they've, they've left. It's just something that happens to a lot of people that leave because there are there is no real reason to keep the commandments after that point. They, they just don't, what we would call the commandments. For them, they want to be kind to people. They still try to hold certain values and morals you know, try to treat people with kindness, the golden rule, some of these, you know, universal truths that we learn in other churches, um, other religions. But as far as what we would consider to be sinful, like drinking alcohol, premarital sex, these things, uh, for these people that leave, these these things aren't sinful. So they might as well just um, go for it. And mm -hmm. so it's kind of, it, it's 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 tough to, to know what, you know, why they do it other than just taking their word for it, which is, not because of sin or because they were offended. Those are the two bottom responses that people give. We might come back to this because I think this is really key to being able to help those who struggle or who have left the church mm -hmm. um, to not make, again, this assumption that right. they left because of behaviors. And that, again, as you had mentioned, there are as many stories and, and as many reasons as there are people. Um, but right. we, we, we just want to keep an open mind about why people may struggle. Mm -hmm. But if we were to go back to your story of, you know, you were just surfing YouTube <laughs> innocently. Right. Right. You weren't looking actively for anything anti. Clearly, you, you weren't equipped to deal with that new and uncomfortable information. And so right. let's say, you know, Leo goes back to that moment and maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves, but... What do you feel like would have better equipped you to deal with that information so that rather than it being a, a deconstructing faith type of experience that you could have navigated it and processed it better without losing faith? Well, I mean, in, in one sense, um, for anybody who's doubting and who listens to this, I, I would just admit that this is uncomfortable information, right? There's really no really easy way, comfortable way to just say, oh, you know, Joseph Smith had 30 plus wives, right, uh, that he was sealed to. And some of them were young, you know, in their teens. And he was uh, later in, in later in the late 20s and early 30s. And so, you know, how, you know, <laughs> how can we be comfortable with this? And so I understand for those that can't believe in Joseph Smith being a prophet because of his practice of plural marriage, I understand that it's just it's uncomfortable information. It's not easy to understand. And so in one in one sense, I would say to myself at that point, I'd say, I know, I get it. It's difficult. This is really hard to understand. Um, it's, But I would, I would encourage anybody like my past self who's encountering information like this is to um, try to imagine what it would be like to be Joseph. You immediately run up against a brick wall because, um, you know, how can I see into the heart of heart and mind of somebody 
especially who lived, you know, you know, 200 years ago, it's, it's like, you know, even the, the person next door, even your own family member, how can you really see into the heart and mind of somebody? And uh, so historical characters, it's really difficult. And that's what historians are, the battle for them is, you know, the challenge is with all the data that they have, they have firsthand, secondhand, thirdhand accounts, somewhat very unreliable accounts. They're sifting through all this data and they have reports from certain people. Can that person be you know, trusted in their account? Was there a motive that they have to, to bash on so-and-so? Um, is this account authentic? And But even if all the data that they have is reliable, to be able to see into that heart and mind of, of the prophet Joseph. And so that's where the spirit is needed. And I would encourage myself, my past self, um, is to seek God's uh, guidance to understand, ask for God to see, help you to see into the heart and mind of Joseph Smith, so or any controversial figure in church history. If you do that and you study the facts, whether it be the the negative um, interpretations, which we call what we, we would typically call anti-Mormon literature, you study the critical information. If you do that, choose to do that, um, or study the positive spin. Either way, spin against or spin for. The Lord will bless you if you keep him involved in the process and ask for guidance to understand um, and ask him to, to guide you to be able to see into the heart and mind of these people. And then if you do that, Joseph comes out as a, as a prophet because um, although he's imperfect, he, he did seek to follow the, the will of the Lord. Mm. I really like that. I've never considered that point as, as something to help us process difficult information, especially when it comes to history, because we, we are seeing through a, a glass darkly Right. when it comes to history. And we have fragments and pieces of what happened, particularly when it comes to polygamy. And so that can be a really, a really hairy subject because we just don't have a lot of information. And I, I've said this before on a previous episode, but I love what I heard once, which is the past is like going to a foreign country. They do things differently there. Mm-hmm. And I myself, as I read the um, the church topic essay on polygamy and, and reading through Fanny Alger's story and, and recognizing she was very young, but as I would continue to dig, recognizing, you know, context is really important and recognizing that at that time it wasn't unusual or extraordinary for people to marry someone at Fanny Alger's age, who was 14. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, but here and now, that's extremely uncomfortable. It's against the law. <laughs> and so anyhow, that's one way that I look at it. But I really love that concept of taking it to the Lord and asking for that revelation to see into the heart and the mind of, of that person. And just to add quickly, if I could, just to that, the latest thing that I felt on the last year or so as I've studied is the Spirit said to me when I was studying this, these difficult things, and said that I do not know of what which I try to speak when it comes to Joseph and Emma's private conversations. So Joseph mm-hmm. and Emma, they spoke a lot about these things, obviously, in, in private conversation. And and I don't know what they the sacred conversations that they had as husband and wife. And so when I when I make jump to conclusions or try to 
theorize about something, why something happened, you know, why Oliver was upset about Fanny and, and, and that sort of thing. What did Joseph and Emma actually talk about behind closed doors? What did Emma know? Um, and so unless I, I know that information, I can't conclude against um, Joseph. I need to trust Emma. Emma uh, spoke highly of Joseph for the rest of her life. If she knew he had been cheating on her, would hate him for that and would have, um, after he died, would have come clean at some point, especially because she stayed behind and didn't really follow the saints. So I think that there's good evidence for assuming the best about Joseph and about Emma with the way that she thought about him. I think that's a great point. I think Emma is some of the best evidence that we have that Joseph was a man of honor and integrity. Mm-hmm. Because certainly, you know, <laughs> she had every every opportunity to out him and to disparage yes. him, which she never did. So, yeah, I think that's a great point. Listen to the women is what I said. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> mm-hmm. So going back to that bit about Steve Harper, what was it about the interaction that you had with him that really helped you to start rebuilding your faith? And I know you've kind of gone into this, but could you maybe explain in a little, a little more detail what it was about that interaction that you felt like was so powerful in helping you back to faith? Of course, his kindness, um, his honesty, but behind it all, just knowing someone as brilliant as um, Brother Harper, Steve, is, and knowing how, you know, I just could sense how much he'd studied in his class and um, you know, reading some of his material, some of his books. I mean, he's he's a brilliant man, um, but he's got a wonderfully kind heart and he's honest. I started to kind of weigh, <laughs> should I listen to this person on YouTube <laughs> or or a man, a scholar who has devoted his life to to studying these things, but but still loves and sustains the prophet Joseph. And um, I stumbled at some point onto this website called Mormon Scholars Testify that's, I think, since been transitioned into uh, Fair Mormon. Uh, they've, like, put the this old website into Fair Mormon. So they have this, you can, I think, can still Google Mormon Scholars Testify. And there's this long list, like uh, probably at least a couple hundred, 300 scholars across the world who have shared their, their faith journey and their testimonies. And you just look at the list of all these amazingly smart, dedicated people who are honest and have integrity, and they choose to believe and to keep their covenants. And that's like a wall of, a just powerful wall of faith. You can go there and, and read these accounts and these, these personal witnesses um, that these people share. And, and that, so that, that difference, I mean, there are some scholars who devote their lives to tearing down the church, and I don't want to dismiss their their credentials, but um, there's a lot more uh, scholarship on our side. But for some reason, when you get in that, you get in that mode of uh, not trusting the institution of the church, um, you kind of just, you want to just dismiss all of the scholarship. And I don't know why that is. There's so much good, um, good thinking, good logic that these scholars use. And, and once you get into that mindset of, I can't trust the church, the institution, therefore I cannot trust these scholars. And I don't understand why. Maybe because apologists do their best, like fair Mormon people, do their best to take their scholarship and try to, you know, disseminate it out to the public and try to use it to defend the church. And I think maybe sometimes we get into trouble by being a little abrasive, a little sarcastic, um, you know, egotistical elitists 
and our uh, dissemination of that um, that scholarship. So I think if we could just stick to the scholarship, share what they've learned, um, and then share a simple, gentle testimony and not be elitist about it, I think we do a lot more good in defending the church. It's called pastoral apologetics instead of the more traditional, sarcastic, confrontational, condescending apologetics. That's a new term for me, pastoral apologetics. Yes. I agree. I think kindness has to lead the way when we're trying to help people who are struggling. One thing that I have been learning as a mom is my kids don't behave better if I make them feel worse. And I think that can translate into any type of relationship, especially as we're trying to, to be good ministers, good shepherds. People won't want to change if we make them feel worse. Mm-hmm. And so love, kindness, just as you had mentioned with Steve, that he was kind, he was honest, he was knowledgeable, he was someone that helped perhaps you feel your value just as, as a human being. And <laughs> yeah. um, all of that combined was apparently a catalyst for you for change. As you continued on that path, were there any other factors that helped you return to faith? Yeah, um, well, once I started to to study both more both sides of the debate, it's funny how the truth is kind of in the middle on things and almost everything that you study. <laughs> you've got to be able to look at both sides and, and really think critically about where you land and then keep studying because sometimes you think you're in the middle and you're still really far to one side. And I see this happening with politics, all kinds of stuff. People just think they know everything <laughs> and we don't. <laughs> And mm-hmm. so what I would I did is I continued to study and I started to involve God more in the process and and asking him for guidance and you know I'm not like a, a very serious studier. I mean I researched a lot on YouTube when I first went through my faith crisis and so I wasn't a big book reader and but as I tried to to study and learn I I did my very best. The Lord was patient with me and and I think sometimes out of the blue he would just give me answers because I was sincere and I we talked about this in our lesson today, Come Follow Me, but being passionate, the Lord loves passionate people. Either it's really passionately righteous and wanting to do what's right, or maybe just really passionately angry. And I was angry at God for a little while after I started to pray again. And I was just, I yelled in my prayers. I said, God, you know, how can you have allowed this to happen with someone I trusted, Joseph Smith? And I just I was like, if you're there, God, and, you know, I, I really did yell and scream in my prayers um, for a little while, and then I started to get all that out of my system. But he absorbed my anger. I think he loved hearing from me, my, my actual heart. Even though I was angry, he was able to absorb that anger and returned it with love and answers. So out of the blue, I would get answers as soon as I'd find something in, in an apologetics piece or whatever. And I so I spent a lot of time on YouTube after I started to rebuild my faith, kind of debating, you know, tre- testing my new answers that I was getting. And I went with the more traditional condescending approach. And I, I tried to be kind because I'm a kind person, but I also was kind of that uh, traditional, um, like a Hugh Nibley kind of approach to apologetics where he kind of talks down to people. I did some of that on YouTube and I, and I, I've repented of it. <laughs> I'm not there anymore doing that, debating people. But it kind of helped me to stretch my my muscles of, of faith, again, and my, my knowledge that I was gaining, and to really test my ideas. And then at some point, I applied to join the Fair Mormon uh, email team. And so I went to, <clears throat> excuse me, 
I went to the Fair Mormon email team and started answering questions and emails and was able to be on their email lists. And it was a great blessing to me, even though I don't really agree with a lot of the approach that that some of the apologists uh, would use in their emails. Some of them are pretty condescending, unfortunately, in their response I saw. But a lot of them were very knowledgeable, and they, they brought a lot of facts to the conversation that I was unaware of, and, and it really opened my eyes to see that there is competent scholarship, like I talked about before, good reasons to believe in the truth claims of the church. And so that was part of my journey coming back, was to work with Fair Mormon. And at some point, I left Fair Mormon and got heavily involved in Uplift. And that's the next part of my journey, was, which I can talk about next, if you'd like. Mm-hmm. And maybe I can ask a quick follow-up question before we get into that, because I'm kind of fascinated with this, he absorbed my anger piece that you talked about. At this point, were you feeling like there was a God? Because I know you had kind of become an atheist. Were you praying to a God you weren't sure was there? Or what what did that look like? Well, I was, I was, I remember the first prayer, um, I was home alone and kind of waited for that moment. Um, And until then, my prayers were just kind of uh, fake where I'd pray, prayed with my wife. You know, I grew up in the church, so I knew how to pray. So I would go through the motions, and by, my heart was not there. And so I, I kind of just yelled up into space, saying, God, if you're there, I just can't believe that this you would allow this to happen. And and I just yelled at him. So yeah, I was just was angry, and I just yelled. I didn't even, I didn't really know for sure. I didn't feel the spirit yelling <laughs> at God. But he heard me. I know he heard me because I think he hears all, all everybody. I think he listens to everybody, even if we're not sincere or whatever. I think he does care that much that he's listening. So even my in my my anger and my disbelief, um, because I was passionate and I yelled, you know, you bet. I gave him an ultimatum. I said, if you're there, God, you better answer this for me, or I'm I am going to leave the church. And I told him that and yelled it at him, um, yelled it up into space. And and so after I got out of my system by yelling. And he absorbed that and started, um, I think I just kind of, it was like a, it was like therapeutic, you know, cathartic to, to get rid of that emotion to somewhere. And, and, but he did listen to me. And then over that, over time, my prayers became softer and I started praying for a softened heart and praying for answers and in more a humble way, more of a loving way. And that's when revelation started to come. Hmm. I really love that, Leo. I appreciate you sharing that. So often, if we're questioning if there is even a God, our instinct is to not pray, to just break connection, break ties. But if you have a desire to believe, I think you did just what you ought to do, which was you prayed authentically to an unknown being. You weren't sure if if God was there, but that is a start. And so if, if there is someone listening and that feels like, you know, I can't pray because I'm not even sure God is there. That experience, Leo, is is a testament to the power of prayer, even if it's an anger and passion, because I do believe in my heart of hearts that God hears us, and he, he will sit with us in that painful space, even if it's in our anger and our frustration. So you had mentioned that you... As, as a second part of your faith journey, you started what's called the Uplift Community of Faith, which I love, and I've learned so much from that community. You have actively worked with those who struggle. What do you feel are some key points we need to remember 
so we can better help our brothers and sisters who struggle, especially those who might be antagonistic toward the church? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, there's a, a bunch of things that we can do and the things that we shouldn't do <laughs> when someone we love is is doubting. Um, the rea- initial reaction uh, from from most members of the church when they've learned or start to suspect someone um, is is doubting is to reduce agency. It's kind of the at the heart of this. And I don't know why we go there, but we start to um, unfortunately start to act in ways, even if we don't want to act in ways where we start to want to try to pull that person back. And it's sometimes through strong words like words of repentance. Sometimes it's throwing articles at somebody. Well, hey, read this. I heard that you have you're having a question, having a doubt about this. Read this article. And it's kind of like we're going into fixed mode. The question I like to ask and probably everything in my life is, is it working for you? That's a, a powerful question. And you know what? This, the, the data is in and the vast majority of people who leave the church and they have family members who act this way and, and basically, you know, the Nephi way, which is to call down the fire from heaven and call the person to repentance. Um, we're not in the Book of Mormon times anymore. We're not in this this old black and white way of living the gospel where it's uh, either full uh, righteousness or damnation. Um, there's this gray area, uh, what a lot of people call nuance um, in today's church. And so um, it's a long answer, but basically we need to stop immediately going to fix, trying to fix the person, pull them back because of we're afraid or because of we love the person and we're just desperately trying to get them to stop reading X, Y, and Z and, and to just come back to church and come back to faith. We're in a mode of desperation because we know that the covenants matter. We know that we want to have that person. We love that person. We don't want them to be lost, right? And so my message to them is to a couple things. is first to listen to the person and to be prepared. If you're not prepared to, with understanding church history or other difficult issues, to be prepared to hear some challenging things and to involve God to do a spiritual cleanse if you need to after you talk to the person and say, I want to hear your your thoughts. What is what is challenging to you? And then to go to the Lord in prayer and, and, and lay those things down on the, the Lord's table and say, I need help to understand these, these, these concerns that this person has. And even when you go back to the person that you love, after you've received some revelation, perhaps, unless the Lord's told you to just throw them article X, Y, and Z to solve, quote unquote, solve the problem, I wouldn't do it. I would just hold on to that information, study alongside the person, um, learning as, as you can, and be prepared when the time comes if the person says, well, I'm, I'm troubled by this, but I'd like to hear what you think, and I'm open to that, and pray for that opportunity. And if that comes, then yes, share your perspective, what you've learned, what the Lord's told you, share with love, um, but I would not f- ever for- try to force your answers on someone you love because it ends up doing the opposite it's not it's not what you think you want it actually would squeeze someone out faster away from the church that's so good leo and i not embarrassed but i i will say that i have gone into that fix-it mode with people 
And I'm learning. It's very natural because I do think that fear often drives that. We don't want to see our loved ones go down a path that we know may be very painful. Um, But I think often that fear is driven by a lack of faith in the atonement of Jesus Christ. And I can speak from my own personal experience. I believe that as we really come to understand grace that comes from the atonement of Jesus Christ and the mercy and the patience of our Heavenly Father, that rather than jumping into fear and fix-it mode, we'll be able to stay back and be patient and, and show love rather than, again, just here's an article, here's a book, and trying to control the outcome for them, but allowing them the space to to take the path they need to take, wherever that takes them, but believing that God is aware of that person and will continue to work in their lives regardless of where they might go. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really powerful. And I I know that for myself, learning to love people where they are at has been really key to my own peace of mind so that I don't feel like I have to fix people. It's not my job, but my job is to love them through whatever they, they choose to do. Well, there's balance here, like, because we have stewardship, right, as a parent, for example, and you have a child who's, who said that I don't want to go to church anymore, and I don't believe anymore, you know, and you have a stewardship over that child. Um, and you love that child, and you know that sealing the sealing covenants matter. And so this, the, the scriptures are chock full of this sense of urgency, right? Repent ye. It's just all throughout. That's the message. This is the time to repent. This is the life. And and there are stories of people who seem to have been lost because they ha- they haven't repented. They've died, and and we are led to believe by the prophets that these people have gone to spirit prison and probably aren't going to receive celestial glory. And so it's just we have to be able to balance that messaging that's very strong urgency in the scriptures and from past prophets. Our current prophets are a little more calm about the whole thing. You notice that. Any kind of preaching of repentance is like pounding the pulpit from President Nelson. He gently encourages us, and the prophets encourage us gently today. But it's not like the the strong call down fire from heaven of prophets of old. So we need to follow the example of our current leaders. They are gentle and meek and, and patient, and they realize that Jesus is playing our Savior. I, I, I refer to our Savior as Jesus because I... I'm in little kid mode. I have little kids and we talk about Jesus a lot. But (laughs) our Savior, he is playing the long game. That's the key. Like you said, grace. His grace is sufficient. He's playing the long game. So we have to be able to maintain relationships. That is the most important message I can share with any person who has a loved one, is to build and maintain and build that relationship. In spite of disagreement, in spite of all those things, you've got to be able to extend that loving arm, put your arm around the person, talk to them about other things, love them like crazy, and get in their their lives. And, and even though you have this huge gap all of a sudden, the church is not there anymore, and your b- common belief, it's, it leaves a huge gap. It's a void. And you have to quickly find ways to connect and to love that person, you know, in some very direct and um, noticeable ways. And, and to explain to that person, if needed, directly and say, I'm wanting to be with you in your space of doubting, even if you don't come back to the church. 
That's the message. You have to be able to tell people that as you are ministering to them and say, whatever you decide to do, I am your mom or I am your dad or I am your brother. I do not care ultimately what you decide to do. I'm still going to be here for you. I love you no matter what. And if we can't share that message directly and powerfully, they are going to hear from the critics of the church that we are only in it to to keep the numbers, right? And we're Mm -hmm. operating out of fear. We're loving them uh, as kind of a mask to, to hide our fear and our our attempts to shame the person back to faith and to control them back to faith. We have to say, no, you, you choose. I'm here for you. I love you no matter what, but I want you to um, rock your own path, but I'm here and love you and will help you if you'd like to talk more about this, whatever it is that you want to talk about. So that's really important. Really good. Thank you. So if there was anything you could share to help an individual who is currently struggling with their faith, what would it be? Mm. Well, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm your friend. Uh, I I talk to people on the phone. So, hey, my name is Leo, and I've been through a faith crisis, and I understand how painful it is. My, it's an identity crisis. I wasn't sure who I was for a while. I lost my identity as a child of God, as a son of God, as a sealed husband. I didn't understand um, those things anymore. It was all c- confusing and and weird to me, sacred things became weird and gross to me for a while. Um, primary hymns, and I understand it. I understand how painful it is to to study these things and to feel like everything is um, that you were taught is a lie. And so my message is to these people is I understand as, as someone who's walked a similar path. And please email me, call me, and I'll talk to you. <laughs> and that's, and that's just because I, I like talking to people and, and I'd be happy to talk to you about your concerns and, and, you know, share my love for you as a fellow human. And let's talk about things. If you're interested in trying to find answers, I'd be happy to share with some of the, some of the answers I've found. I think they're reasonable. And if not, I'd still be your friend. It doesn't change that. So that's my message is I'm here for people. I'm just a fellow traveler. So one of the things we can, we've looked at is, We've gone through this uh, this faith journey, and a lot of people have come, been coming into uplift community of faith. Is uh, this concept of the three P's of truth discovery, and so it's it's basically this: you have the first P is position, uh, the second P is perspective, and the third P is perception. And we often confuse perspective and perception, but talk about position first. So position, um, just as an Im- imagine this with me. If you were to um, imagine at the top of a tower in New York City, they have these binoculars, the coin-operated binoculars, and you can look out over the city. And imagine you go up there and you see a man sitting down next to a binocular with a map in his hand, and he's looking at the map, and he isn't looking out, looking out over the city. He's just looking at his map. And his story is he uh, worked for the last 30 years in sanitation for the city of New York. And he grew tired of the city. It was uh, dirty work. He was, um, you know, worked a long hours, wasn't paid a lot. He just didn't like it. He was treated poorly by people. And he it was just in a poor position because of his work as, in sanitation to really love the city of New York. And even at the end, he, uh, after retiring, he went to the top of this beautiful 
um, you know, tall tower and sat there next to the binoculars and he did not look out to enjoy the beautiful view of, the, of New York City. Instead, he just sat there uh, with a grudge and, you know, and grudge and, and looking, looking at his map of the city and remembering his route and sanitation. Um, and so he's in a position, we'll talk about position, being where he's at geographically, where he's at with um, at the moment, he's on top of the tower. He can um, have a map. He can actually look out the binoculars. He's in a good position to try to change his what we call perspective. And perspective is what you can see and some of the tools that you have at your disposal um, to be able to um, uh, see maybe a little things a little differently. So perspective and perception. So perception is um, different in that um, when you when you perceive something, it's kind of like what perspective have you gained to be able to perceive things uh, in a certain way? So perspective would be kind of like the tools, like the binoculars. Um, it's walking to the top. It's, it's your location where you're at. All those things you have available to you to be able to influence um, your actual, you actually perceive. And it's interesting that if you talk a, a, to different people, like, for example, um, we talked about earlier, why people leave the church. And our perception as members of the church is this person started drinking coffee and drinking, and they then they resigned their membership. But the, that person's, our perception of that experience, what we can see, is very different from the person's that's leaving the church, their perception. And and it's different because our positions are different. We positioned ourselves differently and, and surrounding ourselves in, in different things and different voices. And we've used different tools to get where we're at. We may have we may join different groups, like, for example, on Facebook, you can join groups that are very critical of the church, and you can read certain critical literature about the church and videos, and those are all ways of influencing your perspective and what you can see, and all that leads finally to what you perceive to be the truth. And so when I say truth discovery, the three P's of truth discovery, you, you we're talking about the truth is in quotes, because what we perceive to be the, the truth is not what the those who leave the church perceive to be the truth. And so everyone has their own truth. And so it's kind of like, where are you going to put yourself? What position are you going to put yourself in? What tools are you going to use to build your perspective to ultimately perceive what you consider to be the truth? And so my I guess my encouragement is, based on all that, is to be open to changing your position into changing your perspective using different tools to be able to enhance what you can see. And so being open to scholarship, being open to prayer, being open to talking with faithful members of the church. Um, and maybe you've been in that type of uh, journey that you're going through and then being open to using those tools or your position to ultimately change your perception of, of what you perceived earlier on to be uh, negative about the church. And then those things eventually hopefully can help you to return to faith. Awesome. Thank you. Mm -hmm. It's all really good stuff. Thank you so much for all that you've shared. It's yeah. clear to me that you have done a lot of legwork for yourself uh, and for others to understand faith crises and, and how we can help those around us. And I appreciate that you are using your own experience to bless the lives of those around you. You are doing important work. Thank you very much. And if people do want to get in touch with you, your email address is? Leo Weiniger. It's L-E-O-W-I-N-E-G-A-R at gmail.com.
And Leo said it. You can give him a call <laughs> if you yes, want. Yes, please. And Leo, Leo will spend some time with you. Well, for our final question, Leo, why, after all this, are you still rowing and choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ? Well, I believe it. I believe it with all my heart. I've felt a beautiful light, um, peace, participating in this church. And I've had experiences uh, beyond just a spiritual experience, but amazing miracles that I've seen um, that point me towards belief in, in the restored gospel. It's called my personal epistemology, which is like a testimony 2.0, which is basically a bunch of extra stuff on top of just a a simple spiritual experience that I've had. And and so, yeah, that's why I'm still rowing, because it, I'm happy. And I love being a member of the church and serving within the church. And I do believe that this is Christ's true church, only true church. There's a lot of um, extras that I bring along with that, but um, I definitely be, believe that Christ is leading us, and, and we have a true prophet on the earth, and the scriptures are really from God. And so all these things I've experienced and I know to be true, and I share that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Leo. Thank you for your time and testimony today. You're welcome. Thanks, Tara. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Still Rowing Podcast. The views expressed here are not necessarily the views of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, nor is this podcast affiliated with the church. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to receive updates on future episodes. You can submit comments or questions at stillrowing.com. We would love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening.